What is up, everyone? This is Yanks Go Talking, Episode 7. I am here with our stat soccer nerd and aspiring astrophysicist, Tom. I don't have that many titles. I'm just Jake. I'm a soccer fanatic. And we're here to talk about the U.S. men's national team and MLS. Today, our episode is going to center around the Canadian team and the game against Canada last Sunday, where the U.S. men's national team won 1-0 and took home the group with nine points. We're going to talk some of the transfers that are rumored over the summer window And then we're going to finish off by talking about the knockout rounds and what it looks like going forward for the U.S. men's national team. But before we get started, I want to see how Tom's doing. Tom, what's up on your end? Not much. Would have been doing a little bit better if the U.S. had managed to put on a better show against Canada. But all things considered, doing pretty well and ready to get into the game. But we won, Tom. What's there to complain about? <laughs> There's a lot to complain about from this one. It is, it is definitely going to be a frustrating one to talk about. Uh, we scored in the 20th second. And from there, I think it's fair to say the game went completely downhill. Yeah, I'll, I'll give you that. I would more say 25th minute, but we, we can get into the details now. So let's talk about that game. What, what were your thoughts after the 20th second um, in general with how the game went and how it flowed? After the 20th second, I was really excited. We had just basically broken down Canada with a series of quality passes that involved pretty much the entire spine of our team and was finished with a winger hitting a ball to a wing back. I love to see that. That's beautiful possession play and almost perfect Burhalter ball system to work a goal. After that though, you know, it's 20 minutes of pretty decent possession play and then nothing, absolutely nothing positive for the rest of the game. Yeah. And it's just frustrating. Yeah. I think frustrating encapsulates how I feel and it's, a theme at this point, I think against Haiti, when we won one, nothing against Haiti, you felt like we probably didn't deserve that result. All in all, Marnique was not a great opponent and we played with a lineup that a lot of the fans wanted to see. And then we come up, come up against Canada where we win one, nothing, but it feels the same way that we felt about Haiti. It feels the same way that we felt against Mexico, maybe. That was an elation in a final, but it wasn't our greatest performance. And even the game before that, I think we beat Honduras to get to the Nations League final. It feels like all of our wins in the last four or five games have been more out of luck and maybe in spite of the coaching and in-game management and lineups than because of it. Yeah, I I agree with you. I've been seeing a lot of comparisons of Greg Berhalter to Gareth Southgate, where Gareth Southgate basically wins games based on the talent of his players more than anything he's doing. The best thing a coach like that can do is just put a lineup on the field and get out of their way. But Berhalter does not seem to be able to do that. And that is just horribly frustrating. So maybe let's touch on the starting lineup. So it came out and it seemed like USMNT Twitter. I mean, me personally, I was, I was pretty happy in general with how we lined up. Other than Zardes and potentially Leggett or Acosta, these were essentially the 11 players that I wanted to see on the field. In the first phase of the game, we did line up in a 3-5-2, but in attack, James Sands would step in as the sixth or center defensive mid. We would almost play a 4-4-2 diamond. What did you think on the starting lineup and maybe what kind of plan A was under Greg Bearhalter? I honestly, I thought that about nine of the 11 were players that I wanted have wanted to see and predicted 
were going to play in the game. So I'll, I'm not that unhappy with the starting lineup. The sort of wrinkle of throwing Jam, James Sands in as a six for mo- large stretches of the game was great in the first half. He looked spectacular, but I, do, I don't know what happened. I think that my big complaint with it is playing two strikers up top when we've never done it under Burhalter and making those two strikers be Jossi Sardes and Daryl DK, who are very similar players and I don't think play well together. Yeah, and even what they're good at or what we think about in terms of Zardes and DK, maybe the -the off-the-ball movements, being able to draw fouls potentially to get your team out of danger, they didn't really exude any of those things. They kind of just did everything that we know that they need help on or, or that they need to work on. So other than the goal, I mean, they they took on defenders and took time away for Legette and Vines to get on the ball. But otherwise, I mean, even when we were pinned, you need your two strikers in this situation to at least drop back, draw fouls, or be outlets for the goalkeeper. I thought another interesting piece was Greg really likes to play out of the back. We know Matt Turner, we've talked about this before, doesn't really like to play any short balls. But even when he was playing it long, he wasn't really playing it to one of the forwards up top. So around the 28th minute, one of the big changes that Canada made was that they brought Tejon Buchanan, who was playing on the left wing. They put him on the right wing and really started to attack Sam Vines with both Tejon Buchanan and Junior Hoylet. And from that point on, the U.S. was essentially pinned back in our own half for the entire rest of the game. It wasn't even a half. It wasn't even another phase of the game. It was essentially 70 minutes for the U.S. to really bunker and get that win. Do you think this was more about getting the win and winning the group versus playing you know, beautiful soccer and being able to pass out of the back? Do you think it was almost the instruction of the coach to just get away from that plan and get the one nothing victory? I don't know. I, I would like to think that... Any game against Canada, even with what is clearly not our best 23, we can do better than what we showed in a competitive match. Didn't show that, and I'm not really sure if that's coaching or if it's player selection, if it's formation. It might also be we got an unusually early goal and had an unusually early injury to a crucial player and had to make changes after that and never really recovered from that. So... I don't know. Even considering those things, is our performance forgivable? No, 100% not. Over the last 65 minutes of the game, we were outshot 13 to 1 by Canada missing their best players. That's unacceptable. So where do we go from here? I think where I want to see us go is we'll have to replace the players for the knockout rounds due to injury. We'll talk about that a little bit later. We'll also have to change up what we're doing. I think I like the four three three the three four three better than the that five three two we saw. I don't think that you can play a Daryl DK with a Giassi Zardes. Now DK got hurt. We're not sure sure if he's going to be able to continue or not. We haven't really heard any updates from the U.S. on injury situations that might or might not have occurred. Maybe we replaced DK, but Daryl DK and Giassi Zardes both are players that want. Basically, they're poachers. They're not going to turn around and play with their back to goal in possession, combine well with a center uh, attacking mid like Sebastian Legette, who's being forced into a 10 role when he usually is playing with a partner. We're just taking our best strategy out of the game and forcing ourselves to play in a really unfamiliar system that I don't think suits our players very well. So 
hopefully going forward, we change some things up. I'd like to see either Gio Keeney or Matthew Hopp enter the starting lineup because without them, I don't think we've got a chance to really do much of anything in this tournament. I do want to pick on that for a second. You, you mentioned Matthew Hoppy, and I know we want to talk about our substitutions before we get to that, because it's kind of the first and second thing that has really frustrated me throughout the tournament is we've scored some early goals and then the rest of the game, we haven't really made any adjustments based on what the other team is doing. So before we do move on to substitutions, because it's another frustrating part of Greg's in-game management, the other piece that I thought was really telling is the Canadian team and coach had two particular phases of the game where they picked a player or a, a place on the field that they really wanted to attack. The fact that Greg Berhalter didn't make any changes based on those structural and formation changes from Canada just really didn't make any sense for me. And I guess he was trying to be safe and make sure that the players knew their role and everything like that. But the fact that you can sit there for 70 minutes with a professional team of players that are quite good. Yes, it's our C or D team, but they can listen to different instruction. They play in different formations for their club teams. The fact that he didn't make any changes to our formation or structure, even when the subs came out. So he made like for like subs as well, right? Cannon for more. Hoppy for Zardes, <laughs> midfielder for midfield, Ewell, right, for mm -hmm. our midfield. So it just seemed to me like there was such a reluctance and inability to be flexible with the game plan during the game. Before we move on to subs, like anything you want to touch on there? Yeah, I, I think that that point on flexibility is a really crucial one because we've seen time and time again that Greg Berhalter is just not tactically flexible. I guess today you have to give him a little bit of credit for changing the formation. This is the first time I think he's ever played a two-striker system. But once he got into that two-striker system, he didn't know how to change it up and make adjustments that would help get the best out of the players on the field. And that's a problem. It seemed to me like Canada came to the game with a few different plans. So as soon as mm -hmm. Buchanan couldn't really get past more, they switched to the right side and really attacked Sam Vines. And that had a lot of success for Canada. Whereas the U.S., as soon as we started the game, that was going to be how we played for the rest of the 90 minutes. And that scares me a lot going into the knockout rounds because, again, this isn't the first time that we've talked about this. This is now becoming just a theme with this coach of this inability to be flexible during the game. Now, speaking of in-game management, the substitutions that we saw, I think on two levels we, we can be unhappy about, if I dare say. The first being the fact that Jackson Ewell came on the field instead of Eric Williamson. The second being that Hoppy came on for Zardes so late and then showed so much better than Zardes, where it almost made the fans think, why wasn't Hoppy on the field earlier? Yeah, I mean, Matthew Hoppy clearly should have been brought on at halftime. By that point, we had spent 15 minutes pinned back. Canada had outpredicessed us two to one over that last 15 minutes of the, third, of the first half, which clearly indicates there's a problem. We're not getting the ball out of our own end. A player like Matthew Hoppy, who is by far the most technical player on this roster, should have been put into the game just so that he could relieve some pressure and get the ball up the field. And even when he did get the ball up the field when he came on, it was telling how little help he had. It never felt like we were starting attacks with him. It felt like we were using him to sort of like dribble out the clock almost. He was to dribble up field, beat as many guys as possible, then draw a foul just to 
get out, just get relieve some pressure for a minute, which we can do better than that. And we have the players on this roster who can do better than that. I have no idea why Eric Williamson wasn't called into this game. It seems like the perfect game to try someone like him who's far more energetic, a better ball winner, able to dictate play and get around guys so much better than we know Jackson Ewell is capable of, who is the worst player on this roster right now and struggling with the yips really bad. He, he's gotten too many chances for me at this point, Jackson Ewell, we're mm-hmm. talking about now. I think I was ready to give him another chance after the first, maybe the second time we saw him in Nations League and then in the friendly against Costa Rica after. Just thinking about what form players go through and what their mentality is like and all the different dips and peaks and valleys that players go through. But after these games in the Gold Cup, there's no reason why Williamson shouldn't be above Ewell. Yeah, I agree. And we weren't even playing with a six at that point in the game. James Sands was sort of acting as both a hybrid six center back. And there's no reason to put what Greg sees as a deep lying six playmaker into a game who we know is not deficiently defensively capable of playing when we're trying to close the game out. That feels like it should be Eric Williamson every time. And you'll in limited involvement still manage to create one or two really bad turnovers, which is yeah. telling. Even his defensive positioning, I think around the 66th minute I had made a note where they switch Buchanan back to the left and the Canadian team passes down the left flank and Jackson Ewell is kind of running backwards with the ball directly next to him. He's really just in the middle of nowhere and left Donovan Pines with a one-on-one situation with Buchanan. And that's him being fresh off the sideline. So yeah, yeah, it, it really frustrated me again, not just with the tactics and the structure, but the substitutions as well. How much confidence do you have going into the knockout rounds? Little, very little. And we should have more confidence. This is a gold cup. The U.S. with any team that you can bring from the MLS should expect to make the semifinals comfortably of every single gold cup. And I'm not confident that this squad can beat either Costa Rica or Jamaica. We'll see who tonight. But that's not a good position to be in. Can I pulse check us for a second? So we won the group. We won all three games in the group. Why aren't we more happy? I think it's because we know who was included in this roster, who wasn't included in this roster, who has been playing the minutes in this tournament. And we know that the results on the field are not indicative of who we brought to this tournament. Well said. Well said. Should we close out the Canadian game there? Yeah, I I think so. I don't think it's even worth doing stars and strikes because I don't really have anything there, like at all. (laughs) I I think this game has just been so frustrating to talk about that – I think it's good to just leave it at we can do better than this and we expect Burhalter to be able to coach a better team than this. Maybe not stars, but just give me just throw out a few names of people whose stock has risen. I think James Sands is the big winner of all of this. James Sands looked excellent. He was amazing defensively. He stepped into the midfield, hit some great line breaking passes. There's definitely a conversation to be had about maybe changing up the system when Adams isn't available to accommodate Sands instead. I, I think he's been that good. I also think Miles Robinson's stock rose an incredible amount because he hadn't looked great against Martinique or even against Haiti, but in a match where people were taking the game to us and he was forced to defend, he was a brick wall. He's so fast. He was able to chase down attackers, strikers, win 1v1 duels with them, keep the ball out, win headers in the air. 
he was defensively solid, and that's just always appreciated by me when we're looking at players. So those two for sure. Shaq Moore didn't have his best game, but I think his stock has risen as well as sometimes Busio, but other times he's just not good enough for me either. So, but that's about it. And everyone else down. <laughs> yeah, yeah, pretty much. This is a tournament where your stock can't rise that much, but it can certainly fall. And we're seeing a lot of players go into free fall right now. We have a lot of Tom Petty's on the team. So, all right, Tom, let's let's get to some maybe happier conversations, some transfers that have occurred since we last spoke. Tanner Tessman has made a move to Venezia in Italy, the newly promoted team in Venice. It looks like Gianluca Busio is also on his way. A tidy sum that's going to Sporting Kansas City that I saw about $5 million up front and another 6 or $7 million in incentives, as well as a 10% sell-on clause. What do you think about some of these transfers that are, one, confirmed for Tessman and maybe upcoming for someone like Busio? I, I think it's great from an American perspective. Serie A is a league that we've never really had a lot of talent in. And all of a sudden, it seems like the floodgates are kind of opening that league. West McKenney sort of got this ball rolling and Italian teams are looking to capitalize now. Serie A is a really defensively solid league, almost the most physical in the world. So it's going to be a good test of both Tessman and Busio's abilities. I think Busio's probably... Looking at more minutes off the bat than Tessman, I think that's fair to say. I think Tessman is more of a project. But both of these guys have high potential, and I'm really interested to see how they do in Serie A. I agree with what you said about the prospect with Tanner Tessman, but Venezia is securing a player for a lot of money to them. For a newly promoted team in mm-hmm. Italy to spend 3 or 4 million euros on a young player, I would expect him to get not maybe not starting every game, but I would expect him to get a good amount of playing time. Yeah, I agree. I think he'll play. I've heard some speculation that they're not interested him in him as a midfielder, but more as converting him to a John Brooks style defender with a great pass on him. And that would be a really interesting role for him. I think it's one the U.S. needs more of. So I'm interested to see how he does. And yeah, we'll, we'll see. He's a really big physical guy. So if they can do that and he looks good there, that's great for us as U.S. fans. Yep. And he did pick soccer over playing collegiate football at Clemson. So, he, you know, he's got the the athleticism in the body to maybe play that John Brooks style defending. Although well, he was going to be a kicker. He was a kicker. So. <laughs> he was going to be a kicker. Not and a linebacker. As someone who went to yeah, and as someone who went to school in Furman, at Furman University, which is about 45 minutes from Clemson, you just got to feel pretty amazed with how well that turned out for him. He went from the choice to live four years in Anderson, South Carolina, to being to being a resident of Venice at 19 years old. That's 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 a great deal. Yeah, I think he wins on that one. <laughs> so Venezia has obviously given us a lot of transfer news for young Americans. Any other rumors or speculation that you want to talk about? There's a lot surrounding players that are Coming Colorado Rapids, especially Sam Vine and Cole Bassett, both have rumors surrounding them right now. Those would both be interesting moves. Vines has shown in this Gold Cup, I think, that he can play in Europe and that he would probably be a decent player over there. So I would be more than happy to see him go. I think that Miles Robinson and George Bellow both need to get out of MLS, but only Bellow is rumored right now. I think Galatasaray is interested in him, and that would be another interesting move to see. 
lots of speculation. We'll see what develops. There's also some rumors surrounding some of our strikers too, but nothing's materialized yet. Yeah. Josh Sargent, Matthew Hoppy have been rumored to be on the move as well, although they've both uh, obviously, Matthew Hoppy is with the U.S. team, but Josh Sargent has been scoring lots in the preseason for Werder Bremen, so we'll see if he moves. And next week, I'm sure there will be more transfer news and transfer talk. So let's talk about what the knockout stages look like for the U.S. We're recording this on Tuesday afternoon, so we don't know exactly who the United States will play and what the, the last round of the knockouts will actually look like. But we can discuss and talk about potential matchups. We know that it will be the loser of the Costa Rica-Jamaica group that the U.S. will play on, I believe it's Sunday night. Um, So let's talk a bit about maybe who we would want to play against, who we match up with, and what the road to the final really looks like for the U.S., yeah, so I think first off, we have to emphasis with uh, it doesn't matter who we play. We should have expectations that we can get to the finals. There's no one on our side of the draw or who can be on our side of a draw who we shouldn't be able to beat. Having said that, we do have a couple teams that we could still face. We get in the quarterfinals, we'll get yeah either Costa Rica or Jamaica. I think Costa Rica currently is winning that group over Jamaica. Yeah. They just need a result to force us to play Jamaica. Um, but if Jamaica wins it, then we'll get Costa Rica. Uh, the other side of the draw is Honduras currently winning that group or is it Cotter? So yeah, Honduras has six. Cotter has four. Okay. Yeah. So we're looking at probably the winner of Honduras, El Salvador in the semifinals, which I'm actually really excited for. I really like the fight that El Salvador put up against Mexico. I think that they've got a great coach and a great squad, and they're going to give some people fits over the next year in CONCACAF. So it'll be interesting to see how we match up with them. But realistically, that's either Jamaica or Costa Rica. Then it's either El Salvador, Honduras, or Cotter. None of those are opponents that I'm scared of. Are you? Not particularly, although you mentioned El Salvador. There's a lot of hype around them right now that's building, at least in the hardcore community, it looks like, for the USMNT and people that are paying attention to the Gold Cup. You talked about the fight that they put up with Mexico. I think there's been a lot of uh, circulation of old clips of us being in El Salvador for World Cup qualifying, where it's just a very crazy and chaotic atmosphere for the U.S. to play in. And look, there are a lot of El Salvadorians that live in the U.S. that would be going to these games. It would probably be more close to a 50-50 atmosphere in the field than we would think, especially after being in Sporting KC, playing against Martinique in Canada, where it is a very U.S.-based crowd. Um, So really, El Salvador is the team that worries me the most. Having said that, the bar is quite low. So they don't worry me a lot. I just think it is a danger to play against them. And look, I'll say that the U.S. hasn't given me a ton of confidence going forward. To go back to our game against Canada for the conversation that we just had about our group stage games, yes, we should be able to beat all of these teams that are on our side of the bracket. And at the same time, I'm not confident that we will. Yeah, I I agree with that. We're a team that is clearly struggling right now. And CONCACAF is not a league that you can just walk through. Like we, we tend to think of the gold cup and CONCACAF as being sort of beneath us almost. I think there's a lot of fans who sort of think that way, but 
you shouldn't. You should never think that way. These teams can play. These teams want to beat the U.S. The U.S. goes into every tournament, every match we play with a target on our back. And we're going to have to play well or a team is going to take us out. And I don't know. We know how dangerous teams like Costa Rica, who are old, experienced teams are. We know how good Jamaica is, at least on paper. We know that Honduras has been a team on the rise lately, and so is El Salvador. And Cotter's got a squad that can play. They've developed one of the best squads in Asia. So there's danger to be had in these two games if Berhalter doesn't come out with a better system. So we better see players playing well with each other, being comfortable, good defending, better quality going forward, I think, is the sort of key to the U.S.'s success right now. That's what I think we can take out of these knockout games is this is experience in a very, maybe it's not hostile in the crowd, but it is a hostile environment in, in terms of what the player is feeling. Where if we go down against a Jamaica or Costa Rica or we go down against El Salvador in the semis, like you said, there is a target on the U.S. back. None of these games are going to be easy. And if anything, for me, as a fan looking forward to the World Cup qualifying stages, that's a good lesson to learn for the U.S. And if we're saying that our main goal for the Gold Cup is to find players that fit into our World Cup qualifying squad, those are good lessons to learn in a Gold Cup instead of failing to qualify for the World Cup. Oh, yeah, I completely agree. And especially this kind of meaningless Gold Cup, which is... Uh, not really a tournament that we're expected to win or even really trying to win. It gives sort of our fringe 23 through 35 type players a chance to sort of show that they belong when we're resting a Christian Pulisic, when we're resting a Weston McKinney, when we're resting a John Brooks. And we need someone to fill in that gap in, say, like, San, was it Honduras Stadium? I forget where they actually play. Or when we're going down to maybe Jamaica or we're hosting El Salvador or something like that in a game that we're probably going to be rotating players. These are the matches that show us if these guys have what it takes to be there and to show out for that game. If they don't have what it takes, say we lose in the quarterfinals against Costa Rica or Jamaica. I don't want to say that Greg's under pressure, but what do you think that does to Greg in terms of preparing for the World Cup qualifying stages? Realistically for him, I think that he sees it as a disappointment, but I don't think that it's going to negatively affect him too much besides maybe hopefully changing his call-up structure. But we as fans should use that as an opportunity to put pressure on him, and I think the Federation should as well. I think the expectation should be win now, and if we can't get it done in this next match, then that's a big problem. I actually feel that building, and in a weird way, this is a pat on the back for us as someone that does a podcast, and it's just part of the larger community. I feel like the the community within podcasts and YouTube and all of the people that are creating content based around USMNT is actually raising the temperature on Greg and the team way more than anyone within the Federation or anyone on broadcast I, I feel like there's kind of this tempo building behind the fan base where we know a lot more than people will give us credit for and we pay attention to a lot more than people will give us credit for. What do you think we can do as fans to really turn up that temperature? I think that we as fans need to just keep calling it out, raising questions, putting our opinions on social media. This gets noticed by 
bigger journalists, the Federation notices this stuff. Hopefully they respond to it. Historically, though, U.S. soccer has not been good at that. I do think there's a danger in letting this consume you, though. I, I think we tend to be very positive influences on the U.S. community. We're not always super negative, but there are people who are. And I think there's a danger in us going overboard and saying we're always right. We know X player is good, so they can never have a bad game. We think X player is bad. They can never have a good game. I'm so mad that X player was chosen. Greg needs to be fired because X player wasn't played. Like These are overreactions almost, but I think there is still space where we need to be critical and we need to say, you know, we demand results. We support this team. I think it's reasonable to sort of be angry with the state of the coaching. I, I think what you're saying is be aware of your own biases. So yeah. if you really love mm. and were excited to watch Gianluca Busio, but objectively he didn't have a great game against Canada, how yeah. are you rating his performance? Well, not just how are you rating his performance, but how are you interacting with the wider community about his performance? Mm -hmm is sort of like we can be critical of Greg Berhalter and need to be critical of Greg Berhalter, but we don't need to be critical of each other in how we're going about doing that. Yeah, definitely. It's sort of my, my big takeaway there. <laughs> so I want to get your take on how the knockout rounds will go and do a mini kind of exercise to see who's, who's in that final and who's in the semifinals. But I want to put a bit of pressure on us as well. We just said we're the positive ones. <laughs> this whole episode has been quite negative. And, and that's what we're trying to do is like, there is some part of us that needs to hold accountable to what we see on TV, what we see with the lineups, the flexibility of tactics. Tom, say one positive thing about the game against Canada. I really liked the defensive setup. I know that we didn't look great offensively. We didn't look great in possession, but our defense was spectacular. And Miles Robinson's, Sam Vines, and James Sands put in an amazing defensive performance and really won that game themselves. And that's something to be proud of. They even kind of carried a struggling Donovan Pines across the finish line, which is great, which is amazing from them. So I will gladly rate that back five setup that we sort of fell into as being high quality and doing their job well. As easily as they bypassed our midfield three, they could not get past our back five. And props to them. Good answer. Good answer. Lots of claps <laughs> here on our end. <laughs> I, I appreciate that Greg can be uh, experimental in his plan A. So in all three of the group stage games, we played a different formation and a different setup. And as much as people were calling for it, although it wasn't the two strikers that we wanted to see, he did put out a two-striker formation. Good job, Greg. Terrible job on the last 70 minutes, but we've already, we've already pounded that into the sand here. So, Tom, let's, let's look at these knockout rounds, right? So El Salvador and the U.S. are currently on the same side of the bracket. We'll most likely play either Jamaica or Costa Rica, and then El Salvador will probably play Qatar, but they might play Honduras. Mexico and Canada are on the other side of the bracket. They'll play. Um, so who will they play on their side of the bracket? They're either going to get Honduras or Cotter. I'm not sure who it's going to be yet. I, I honestly think it's going to be Cotter. I, I think Honduras is probably going to beat Cotter in this next game. And so I expect 
Honduras to end up on Mexico's side and Qatar to end up on our side. Gotcha. Okay, so let's say that happens. So El Salvador is playing Honduras. U.S. is playing. Who who are we going to play? Who do you think we're going to play? I think we're going to get probably Costa Rica. I don't think Costa Rica's got the quality to beat Jamaica these days, especially with Kaylor Navas not playing in the Gold Cup. Okay, so who wins in the Honduras-El Salvador game? Honestly, as good as El Salvador's been, I think that they're going to struggle with a team who can out-conca-cap them, and no one conca-caps better than Honduras. So I say Honduras takes them out and moves to the The original conca-cappers. <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay, so whether it be Jamaica or Costa Rica, do you think the U.S. beats them in the quarterfinal? I think we beat... Costa Rica easier than Jamaica, but I think we beat one of those two. Yes. Okay. So you're thinking Honduras and the U.S. in the semifinal. Who wins that game? My heart says the U.S., and I'm going to go with that. I really do think this U.S. team is capable of making the final. Okay. So we'll put the U.S. in the final. Mm-hmm. Onto the other side of the bracket. Mexico will likely play. Who do we say there? Cotter, I think. Cotter. Okay. Are you, are you thinking Mexico goes through? I think Mexico goes through. And then how about this Canadian team? I thought they played really well in the group stages and probably deserved more than a one nothing loss to the U.S. men's national team. I think they make it to the semis as well. What are I disagree. Thoughts? I disagree, especially if they play Jamaica. I do think that they showed out really well offensively, but their defense was atrocious, especially for the first 25 minutes. My big takeaway from the first 25 minutes was that Canada who basically played a first-choice defense, is going to be really scared of the U.S.'s A-team. And a team like Jamaica, who has a Leon Bailey, could really give them trouble early and pin them back. And I'm not sure if Jamaica's quality is going to be as forgivable as the U.S. over the last bit of the game. If I can just say on Jamaica as well, in, in a one-off knockout game, if you have Leon Bailey in attack and Andre Blake in goal, Mm-hmm. There's no team that you can't beat out of a hundred tries. Oh yeah. Yeah. 100%. Like just they have two a, X factors like that. Yeah. They have a quality squad. That being said, they came really close to not getting a win against Guadalupe, mm-hmm. like really close. So like, there's clearly not quite as much chemistry as you'd hope to see in that Jamaica squad. I mean, to, not to fault them too much, each team has had a trip up in this Gold Cup so far. Yeah, that's that's true. Okay, so if it is Canada-Jamaica, are you going Jamaica? I'm going Jamaica. All right. I, I'm going to disagree there. So Mexico-Jamaica in the semis, who wins that game? I, I got to say Mexico. I, I would like to say Jamaica, but I just don't see it. I, I think that Mexico is a better team. All right, so the U.S.-Mexico meets in the finals. According to Tom and me, <laughs> who do you have going home with the Gold Cup? Mexico's. I don't think that there's any way if we gave them 15 tries that this U.S. squad beats Mexico. <gasps> Tom. <laughs> That's very negative. That. <laughs> but this Mexico team is almost the same team we played at Nations League. And our best players struggled in that match on a neutral field. Throwing out a team of MLS youth players against Mexico's experienced veteran lineup is not going to go well. Yeah, I agree. Mexico has a much better team than we do. And if Mm -hmm. we play them in the final, I think they're going to come out with a vengeance 
to really mess with the U.S. team. And uh, did you see some of the news I was reading today that was reported on the Mexican news channels that Mexico is upset that we brought a B team to the Gold Cup and they're they're just going to bring U23 teams to the rest of the Gold Cups going out, out from here? Did you see I that? Think it was just for, I think it was just for 2023, but right now I just, I'm like, okay, sure. Say that now, <laughs> two years out. We'll see how you feel after a World Cup. We'll see how you feel after this Gold Cup is actually done. It feels very early to be saying that and like they're just angry they lost the Nations League still. I think they are. I think that's yeah. why. <laughs> yeah, I think that they're really angry about that. It's it's almost amusing how much that win got under the Mexican media's skin. Do you think they're scared at all to lose the Gold Cup? I think that Tata Martino is. I think that the, the way that Mexico's played in this tournament has sort of shown that Martino views this as a chance to save his job. And if they don't win, does he have a job? I don't think so. I think especially if they were to lose to the U.S., that would be it for him. I think he's almost in a Jurgen Klinsmann type role where he's got to perform now. And if he doesn't, he could be gone in September. That would be a crazy time to make a coaching change right before the Ocho starts. But I guess better in the beginning of the qualifying session than in the middle of it. Yeah, we saw how well that worked out four years ago. It's not a good idea to ever do that. And even this close to qualifying, like Mexico shouldn't be looking to make a change. But Mexico has the English Premier League attitude towards national team coaches, where if you don't perform, we'll just get a new one in. And if they don't perform, we'll just replace them as well. So, um, yeah, (laughs) worth noting as we look at this Gold Cup bracket that there's a good chance the U.S. plays each of the three Nations League semifinalists on their way to the final. Nice. Yeah, good call. Which, uh, again. Yeah, yeah, interesting. And, and more good tests for this U.S. team. I think there's a lot of learning experiences to be taken out of this Gold Cup. Yeah, I think so. I think viewing this Gold Cup as a learning experience and a chance to show what we've got as depth is a lot better than being like, we've got to win this thing at all costs, like, and getting any too angry about it. I think that taking a step back and saying, okay, how did our youth play? How did our development squad look is a better way to look at it. Did you hear that? Every single one of the USMNT fans in the world. (laughs) Did you hear what Tom (laughs) just said? Yes, no, they didn't. And they'll probably still call me out on Twitter for it. But <laughs> <laughs> again, all of the 50 or so people that will listen to this, but many more are coming to the show. We really appreciate all of the support so far. We had a really successful live show last week, which was a ton of fun. Um, we're back to recorded because it's probably a bit better of a listening experience, but we'll definitely fill in some time with some live shows going forward and take some live questions from the audience. Tom, I have one more question for you. Efrain Alvarez made his debut for Mexico in a competitive match when Lozano got injured in Mexico's first Gold Cup game. He hasn't seen the field since. Was that predatory cap tying? Will Efrain Alvarez play any part in in the Mexico team going forward? He could later on, but I don't see him being a big part over the next, you know, year or so i i don't quite know 
why he would accept a cap tie and call up from either the U.S. or Mexico this young, considering he's still developing. He's still not even a regular starter in MLS, so we're not going to be calling him up regularly to play with our first team, and Mexico's not going to be calling him up regularly to play for their for- first team. So I don't know why he did it, but Mexico's certainly happy to predatorily cap tie someone. It is a bit weird if he doesn't play for the rest of the tournament, uh, how David Ochoa and Julian Araujo and some of the other dual nationals that are choosing between the U.S. and Mexico might think. Yes, we didn't cap tie David Ochoa. Yes, we called up Julian Araujo and was ready to cap tie him most likely, but he denied the call up, which is totally fine from the player perspective. But this can't be a good look for Mexico for the dual nationals that are looking to make a decision soon. Yeah, I, I think it's also indicative of just how bad Burhalter's recruitment has been to Mexican-Americans, and that's a problem. It is tough because we've, in his tenure, right, Serginho Dest, Yunus Musa, all of those players have come on as dual nationals and even tri-nationals sometimes, choosing the U.S. But it hasn't really had the same effect or carryover and success for the U.S.-Mexican dual nationals. So I am wondering how this affects the mentality of someone like David Ochoa or Julian Araujo that's watching maybe a, a Jonathan Gomez, right, who had cap tied himself to Mexico and hasn't even been a part of the 23 or, or team since the, yeah. Jonathan Gonzalez, Gonzalez, not Gomez. Yes. <laughs> Gomez is the prospect who's sort of between the two. Gonzalez is the center defensive mid who can't get minutes in Liga MX. You're right. Sorry to scare anyone. <laughs> Jonathan Gonzalez, not Jonathan Gomez. Um, but yeah, same, same thing applies. Like Mexico capitalizes him, throws him to the wind, doesn't even consider him for the team. And to be fair, like he hasn't really performed incredibly and deserves a spot. But at the same time, he probably didn't deserve a spot on the team at that point. And Efrain Alvarez is most likely a fringe player for Mexico at this point as well. Tom, I think that's our show Anything else to say to the people? You dropped some wise facts today. (laughs) (laughs) No, I think that's about it for me. Um, We'll see how the U.S. does going forward. Hopefully they make some good injury substitutions going forward. And we see a couple new different players joining the team. And we're just going to keep curiously watching to see how our youth are doing. Well, everyone, we will see you next week. Same time after the U.S. plays their quarterfinal match over the weekend. We're excited to watch and break it down all for you next week. Thank you so much for watching and listening. Have a great week. See everyone. Bye, guys.